This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 8. If you're privileged to have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn there with us. I'll be reading the psalm as we go through the message. <clears throat> it's always a delight to study in the psalms. You can't beat a, a book or a se- section of the book and starts out, Blessed is the man and ends with, Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Psalm 8. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we stand before You this congregation and before You in weakness and in much trembling for the message we are charged to preach must not be persuasive words of human wisdom, but rather a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power in order that our faith should not rest upon the wisdom of men, but only and always upon the power of God. This is the desire and end we make to our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If someone asks you who you are, what do you tell them? Normally you give your name. Your name is a brief description of who you are. And from the beginning of creation... Names have served as a concise designation of uh, by which someone or something is known, its significance about it. Remember in the beginning, God brought all the animals to Adam for him to name them. Long neck thing, giraffe. I don't know what all that. But it, Adam named all the animals. He even named his wife Eve because she is the mother of of all living. Names are significant. Uh, God also wants to know wants us to know his name. It is wonderful. Remember the parents of Samson asked their visitor, What is your name? And he said, It's wonderful. His name is wonderful. He wants us to know who he is and what he's like. And because of that, He's revealed Himself in the Scripture as well as the universe around us. Uh, He's done so in such a way as to accommodate, if you will, uh, our finite understanding. The infinite God actually would require an infinite number of names, wouldn't He? To explain who we're talking to. But He hasn't done that for us. He's limited that. We thank Him for that. Uh, names and titles for God in the Scripture are not not the creation of men trying to uh, define God, but are rather revealed disclosures as to who He is and by which we sustain this relationship to Him. Someone has said that God can can be described, but He cannot be defined. He can be revealed, but not fully understood. Only God can define God. As He said to Moses, I am who I am. God's name in a comprehensive sense is the person He's revealed Himself to be. It's interesting, Moses has two different encounters regarding God's name that we read in the Scripture. The first is at the burning bush when God is calling him out to deliver his people from Egyptian bondage. 
in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Let me read this to you in the way it actually occurs in the original. It says, Then Moses said to God Elohim, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, Moses is telling God this. What am I going to say here? And I, I will say to them, the God Elohim of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? Shall I, what shall I say to them? And so God Elohim said to Moses, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh who has sent me to you. God Elohim furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord Yahweh, the God Elohim of your fathers, the God Elohim of Abraham, the God Elohim of Isaac, the God Elohim of Jacob, has sent me to you. This Yahweh is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Then there's a second incident where he he is given the name of God, if you will, in the rewrite of the tablets. Remember, he came down from the mountain, they were worshiping the golden calf. So he destroyed those tablets, and God says, well, bring some more up on the mountain, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll rewrite those for you. So this is the rewrite, and it says in Exodus 34, 5-7, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord the name of Yahweh, setting forth five statements called, actually this is called the Exodus Credo. And this is what his name actually means. This is what, it, what we should understand when we hear the word Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh is a God compassionate and gracious, a God slow to anger, a God of steadfast love, a God of trustworthy and true, a God of forgiveness and justice. His name gives us in these statements a comprehensive sense of the person God has revealed Himself to be. And this is what He wants us to think, wants to come to our mind when we think of the name of God. This is what God, this is, this is Him, these expressions of Himself. So now let's look at Psalm 8. That was just an introduction, okay? The old guy. I'm, I hope you got some time today, but it, anyway. Uh, Psalm 8. It's uh, one of those places in the Bible where God's name is sung and celebrated through music. We love good music. I can't sing, and can it be, especially the fourth verse without crying, when I think of my shackles falling off when I came to know Him. It's a beautiful example of what a hymn really should be. It, uh, it delights in the manifest glory of God with joy and awe. It's quoted three times in the New Testament, Matthew 21, 1 Corinthians 15, and Hebrews 2. Basically, I'm going to follow it in three, four set stanzas, if you will, and then a refrain. This is another point. All psalms are unique. And certainly this one has its own unique features. 
Uh, one feature of this psalm, if you've got your Bible open to Psalm 8, <clears throat> you'll notice back in, in Psalm 7, it closes with this statement, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And then if you look in the following psalm, Psalm 9, in verse 2 it says, I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. This is actually called <clears throat> an interliterary context where the preceding psalm sets you up for the next psalm and this psalm sets you up for the next psalm. So it's, it's a connection between the psalms here. There's also an interesting uh, concept of this psalm as well. It's called a, an envelope psalm, which means it opens and it closes with the same statement as like Psalm 103. But this is a, a unique feature. Uh, and actually, the same statement here is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic or how excellent is your name in all the earth actually is a statement of the overriding theme of Psalm 8. One thing about this psalm is it's, it points out some of the unexpectedness of God's ways in, in roles, the different roles He's assigned to people, the strong, the weak, uh, to, to nature, uh, to, the, to the spectacular and to the obscure, to the many and the few. He reminds us that out of all creation, man alone is the image bearer of God. He is actually the chief reflector of the excellence of His name. That's hard to believe when we look around, especially in our present world, but that was the original design. God chose a man to be His image bearer, to reflect something of who He is to reflect His name in the earth. This psalm tells us that we can't uh, understand what man is if we don't properly understand who God is. We don't understand what He has in mind with man. Or what the true original design of a human being is all about. This psalm looks forward to the recovery of the day when the second Adam, who actually could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Talk about reflecting the image in a man. That's what Jesus, he, he, that's what we should have been like. And that's what we should be like. To look at us is to see something of the character, the nature, the love and, and the concern that, that only God has. The last Adam also, who will restore the cultural mandate or dominion over the earth and all nature that was forfeited by our first forefather, Adam, disobedience. These are some of the unusual things about the psalm. Let's, look, let's begin with a superscription. I do believe that superscriptions or the titles before the psalms are all inspired. They're part of it. The Hebrew Bible always counts that as verse 1. So let's look at the, the, the superscription here. It says, For the choir director on the Giddeth, a psalm of David. So apparently it was written by David. And he is directing the music director to 
uh, utilize something called a giddeth. I have no idea what a giddeth is, and most of us don't. Uh, they fully understood that when this was written. Everybody knew what that meant. Uh, several suggestions. One is that a giddeth is the female form, or the feminine form of the word gath, which means wine press. So it may have something to do, maybe a title of a popular song uh, that this psalm was to be sung to, and maybe by those treading out wine at the wine press, some kind of a joyous occasion they were to sing this too. Maybe the word giddy comes in there some way. I'm not sure. But then, anyway. And then another suggestion is that it, it's probably telling us the psalm is to be accompanied by an eight-stringed harp-like instrument. So he's just probably saying, go getteth the guitar. Something like that. Okay. That's just my interpretation of that. Let's look at verse 1. The first stanza, verses 1 and 2, are directed toward the glory of God. And the introductory refrain, verse 1, uh, and you should, uh, just a note, there's a test after the psalm, or after the sermon. Uh, you have to tell me who the three kings mentioned or alluded to in the psalm. Catch you later on that one. But anyway, here King David begins with this exclamation extolling the incomprehensible, infinite glory of our God O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's interesting that this is not just repeating Lord, Lord. If you look closely at your Bible, you will see that the first Lord is all in uppercase letters. And this is where we encounter a, a translation device. When the people translating this into our language run across the, the word Jehovah or Elohim, they would write Lord in all caps. All right. So that's when you're looking, reading the Bible, you say, is this Jehovah? Is this Elohim? Is, what is this? Well, when it's all caps, it's Jehovah or, or Yahweh. So this is actually the name of God appears first. Oh, Yahweh. Uh, again, personal covenant name of God. I am that I am. Uh, it is who he is. Uh, someone almost, always imminently involved in our moral and spiritual circumstance. That's, that's Jehovah. That is Yahweh. And then the second Lord here is actually a title. The first Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. The second Lord here, again, upper lower case, is another translation device. When they run across the little word Adonai, then they 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 wrote write it in capital L little lowercase O R D. Adonai denotes his title. Adonai means master, ruler, owner. So the second Lord doesn't tell us who he is. It tells us how he relates to us. He is my Lord and master. It's Jehovah is my Lord and master. See how that works? Um, we have them, we all have names and titles. Everybody here has one. We know Pastor Connor, um, President Trump. <clears throat> the, my favorite is Grandpa Bolin. So we all have titles that attach our name that explain how we're related to other people. So this is what this is about. It's the name of Jehovah, the Lord. My God, my my master, 
if you will. So this is basically how it is expressing itself. It's also interesting that the word my or our are never used in connection with the word Jehovah. There never is a my Jehovah or our Jehovah. It's interesting. You read all these Psalms, Psalm 135. For I know the Lord is great and that our Lord, Adonai, and then Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Adonai. See how that works? He's never possessive. We never possess the name. We possess, this is where I fit with this person. He is my master and my Lord. So actually, we could start the verse by saying, Jehovah, who is my master, is really what he's telling us here. And our fallen world is full of people that aspire to be our masters, but there's only one true Lord, Paul says in Ephesians 4, there's just one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. There's just one Lord. Then he adds, how excellent is thy name. God wants us to know his name. And his name is an excellent name. He expresses all that he is with regard to his nature, his character, his reputation, his attributes, his perfections. His transcendent majesty and excellence is so magnificent, so glorious, it's almost inexpressible. How could we, how could we name someone like him? How could we put a single name to that? Um, <clears throat> it says in Psalm 76, verse 4, Thou art radiant, resplendent, majestic. Psalm 104 says, Very great, clothed with splendor and majesty. Cover yourself with light as with a cloak, and stretching out heaven like a tent. So it's really hard to express someone whose name is absolutely magnificent, excellent, if you will, majestic in all the earth. And he adds, in all the earth and above the heavens, in the rest of the verse, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Thou hast displayed thy splendor above the heavens. So his infinite majesty and distinctive excellence is not just declared by man, but it's conspicuously stamped on everything that he touched. Everything that he's created, it has his it has his fingerprints on it. I think of Nebuchadnezzar's bricks. And you go over to Iraq, and they found 15 million bricks. They all have Nebuchadnezzar stamped on them. This is me. This is my brick. This is my country. This is this is my city, if you will. Everything God touches has His name on it as well. It comes off expressing something of His excellence. It says here that. His splendor covers the heaven as the earth is full of His praise. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. He accommodates Himself, I think, to our powers of comprehension in, in these ways. How do we ever grasp God who is like this? Our knowledge of Him is certainly not exhaustive, it's, but it's true. And it's, it's sufficient for us. It's trustworthy. It's based on His self-revelation in the Word of God as well as in the universe. This is our God. And it's something wonderful. His name is wonderful. Then we notice verse 2 in this first stanza. He shifts now. The, the, 
there's a lot of contrast in, in Psalm 8. But here he shifts. He, he's highlighting something of uh, the, the unexpectedness of our God. And he's going to contrast things like infants and infidels, the weak and the strong, the obscure and the spectacular, the few and the many. Out of everything God has created, He's chosen little insignificant man to be the reflector of who He is. Notice it says here, From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of or with regard to your adversaries to do away with the enemy and the revengeful. This is interesting. First thing you pick up here is that babies are powerful. If you don't believe it, just bring a baby into a room. They run in the room. They've taken over the whole room. Babies are very powerful. Um, And certainly, it's like um, God's awesome power is expressed and validated, if you will, through that which is weak. And this is, I think this is central in the poet's mind here. It's like, send in the baby. <laughs> Wait a minute, we're losing this battle. Send in the baby. You know, we'd think, send in the Terminator or something like that. No, send in the baby. There's a shift here from considering the awesome vastness and immense splendor of God's power within the created order to this weakest specimen of humanity, toddlers and nursing babies. Jesus says in Matthew 11.25, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you've revealed them to babes, infants. Everybody knows that these munchkins rule the house. If you have a new baby, you know that by now, I'm sure. Um, They can't say much, but they do communicate very effectively. Stuart Briscoe's notes there, they may be suffering from not enough moisture at one end and too much at the other end and, and a lot of wind in the middle. So if you pour it in and mop it up and burp it out, peace will reign. So those of you with little babies understand that. And again, there's nothing more helpless or defenseless and dependent upon others than an infant, which in Scripture also serves as the distinguishing feature of this humble, submissive disposition of God's people, the people that He uses. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, and when Paul prayed about this thorn in the flesh, and God's response was, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in what? Weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I most, Paul says, that's good enough for me. I, therefore, gladly I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon him. Also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, it says that God has chosen those considered by the world to be foolish, to be weak, to be immature, to be insignificant deplorables, if you will, and he chooses, he chooses to choose, he chooses these people to confound and do away with the powerful worldly wise. 
He never hires the best ad agency. He never hires a, P, uh, a, a PR man, if you will. Um, but he sends out the babies. The foolish, the weak, the immature, the babe-like humans. In fact, that's what advances his honor, his reputation, his name. He's chosen to use that to glorify himself. In fact, someone has said that the power of the gospel is never the result of human wisdom or eloquence or sophistication of the speaker. Keep that in mind today. Then it includes here the adversaries. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So God's using the weak to confound the powerful is picked up and illustrated by Jesus in Matthew 21 where he actually quotes this to the, the scribes and the Pharisees. It says here, but when the humanly powerful leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, saw the wonderful things that Jesus had done, and the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read from the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? So here's the passage that Jesus picks up on and he said, he quotes Psalm 8, if you will, and he applies it to these chief priests and scribes that are seeking to prevent the people from embracing, to understanding and embracing the Messiah, their Messiah and King, Jesus Christ. It highlights this generation of Israel's leadership had taken this adversarial position as vengeful enemies in opposition to the will of God, rejecting his anointed one. So here he uses children to shame and to silence these humanly powerful enemies. The second stanza, verses 3 and 4, basically begins with this far-reaching importance of God as he considers the heavens, if you will. He says in verse 3, When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, so here he, he glances upward at the heavens. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you've ordained. Gaze upon this vastness of, 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 of the stars and the heavens above us. <clears throat> it should make us feel somewhat insignificant. I mean, oh my, look at this. And <clears throat> the Hebrew word here for heaven, translated heavens in the scripture, speaks of the heights or that which is above us, that which is exalted high. It was also understood by the ancients to refer to one of three major realms or spheres of existence. Almost always occurs in the plural intensive, a technical plural intensive. It's hard to find the word heaven, singular, in the Bible. It's almost always heavens, plural, as it is here. Basically, they understood this uh, to be a plurality of above us, if you're that which is above us. And then Paul speaks of someone who was caught up to the third heaven. 
in 2 Corinthians 12.2. So if there's a third heaven, then there might be a second and a first heaven. So basically that was how the ancients understood the heavens. There was three stages, if you will. There are three different areas. There's the above heaven, the first heaven. In some case, this word refers to that atmospheric blanket of breathable air we call the sky, um, <clears throat> where clouds float, rain, thank God for the rain, and snowfall. The Greeks had another word for heaven besides uranos. It was the word A-E-R, air. We translate it A-I-R, air. It refers to anything below Mount Olympus. Jesus said, behold, the birds of the air. He uses this word. Uh, Paul uses the term to describe Satan's domain. He's the prince and the power of the air, that which is right above us, all that. Then Jesus uh, returns, uh, when he returns to snatch away his saints, this meeting is said to occur in this first heaven and be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, right here, this atmospheric heaven, the first heaven. There's a second heaven that's outside that. And depending on the context, the word heaven is sometimes used to refer to the stellar or celestial realm, the moon, the planet, the stars, sun. We refer to the second heaven as outer space. And the vastness of it is so staggering that the mileage has to be calculated in light years. That's just, it's so huge. It's just, it staggers the imagination to think that uh, this little dot here is a whole galaxy. Over. It, just, it just boggles the mind. But there's a third heaven, and that's the one beyond these. And this is the term that I think Paul is referring to. This would be the abode or the habitation of God. Uh, God, of course, is everywhere present with the whole of his being. According to Solomon, this house can't contain you. Nothing can contain God. He's everywhere. He's everywhere present with the whole of his being. And yet, this is the localized presence. This is the localized place of God's manifest presence that we refer to as heaven. This is where the risen Christ is. This is where the angels are. This is where the departed saints all are. One day we'll be there if we know the Lord. And then... The rest of this verse says, uh, this is the work of your fingers. This almost adds this further note about these God-ordained heavens. And he says, this is the work of your fingers. It's just something I threw together. As if God would throw something together. If he threw it, it would be together. It would be right. The expression projects the idea of embroidery. The heavens and all that God made is like something beautiful. A piece of craftsmanship with infinite attention to detail. Very intricate, if you will. And certainly any study of the universe, just look at a single cell. I mean, they usually think it was just a little single thing, but no, it's pretty intricate, pretty pretty amazing the more you look into it. It's, certainly it should moderate our pride and promote humility of the of the finger work of God, what God just did with his finger. And so also, I think it, one, of the, one of the prophets that says that God rolled up his sleeve to accomplish salvation. And it's finger work, creation, roll up his sleeve, salvation. 
Then he contrasts that to human beings from this resplendent glory of the heavens to man. And only man can look up with insight at all this stuff, all these things that God has made, and ask the question, well, who am I in the light of all this? And I think that's, that's the point here. That who am I that you are mindful of me? Who, who is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? So a couple more comparisons or contrasts here. Verse 4, he asked the question, what is man that thou take thought of him? Um, again, this is David is overcome by the condescension of God that he has regard for not just galaxies out here, but this little guy that he created in, in the garden. Created out of the dust of the ground, breathed through his nostrils the breath of life, and he became his image bearer, if you will. We seem kind of insignificant when you look at the rest of the rest of the cosmic order of things. That God made man in his image with the capacity to know him is apparently greater than the mystery of the universe. Why man? I mean, think of all the other that God has created, but He's chosen man to be the expression of Himself in His cre- in His creation, if you will. This word man, this first as man, if you will, what is man, the first man mentioned here, is a little word, actually it's the word Enosh, I think it's the son of Shem in Genesis 4, 26, but it describes a mortal man in all his frailty, the man who's like a leaf that withers, the man who's like the grass that's here today and it's gone tomorrow, something that's weak, that's puny, that's insignificant compared to the rest of the world. He didn't choose a lion, but he chose man. I mean, we have no claws, no no gnarly teeth. Well, we got some gnarly teeth, but we're not like, we're not. Def- Defendable, if you will. We have to be defended. So here's a man. First man speaks of mortal man in all his frailty. Then he adds a second as a son of man and the son of man, if you will. What is man that thou dost take thought of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? The second one is not Enish. It's a different word for man. It's Ben Adam. The son of Adam. What is the son of Adam that you care for him? Again, I think it's a generic term for man in contrast to son of God. He is a son of man, the son of Adam. It describes man as an earthling. He is of the earth, if you will. He traces his origin back to Adam, who was a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Romans 5. 14, Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So this expression, the Son of Man, looks forward to the recovery of this original design in man of God's image by the second Adam. Who could say, if you have seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the perfect representation. That's the way we should have been. Um, and then he also, the second Adam, actually is the last Adam, and he will restore that original dominion that God gave man over the earth 
that was forfeited by Adam's disobedience. I'll, let me throw in a couple more things here. I like to throw stuff in. Sorry about that. I'm a horrible cook. I throw stuff in. That shouldn't have been in there. Anyway, um, the name Jesus is our Lord's personal human name. You remember Gabriel comes to Joseph and said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. What's his name? Jesus. That's his name. Uh, <clears throat> it speaks of humiliation for the purpose of deliverance. He is a human in order that he can deliver humans. He become a man so that he could identify with us fully and save us from our sins. Um, so this is his personal human name. And you'll notice that the disciples never call him Jesus. It's always Lord or Rabbi or something. And they don't call him by his personal name. Uh, and it's also interesting that when Jesus refers to himself, he calls himself the Son of Man. Remember, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? When someone asks, who are you? He's the Son of Man. This is the Son of Man, if you will. The Son of Adam, if you will. Um, everything prefigured, if you will, in the first Adam is fully realized and greatly expanded in the last Adam. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. I think Paul is telling us that uh, we actually receive our physicality from Adam, but we will be glorified because of Jesus entering into our physicality. Notice there's this other little word that we have to look at, and that's the word visited. I love this word. This is the word Pequod. You ever heard that word before? You're familiar with Moby Dick? What's the ship's name? The Pequod. God's going to visit these people, if you will. And, and the great white whale is God, actually. He's the one that's in control of everything. But certainly this little word, Pequod, uh, what is man that you have visited him? It's a word associated with divine activity. God outwardly and perceptively manifests Himself to take thought of, to care for, to look in upon, to be mindful of man. What is man that thou art mindful of him, that you visited him? So man apparently is the focus of God's attention. Job says, actually says this, he calls God, O watcher of men. <laughs> God is, he visited men, if you will. Sometimes this visit from God is a is kind of a bad thing. It says in Exodus thirty two thirty four. Now therefore lead the people to the place where I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sins. So sometimes God visits man to punish him. He watches man. He knows everything we do, everything we think. Sometimes he will visit punishment. But it can also express God caring for man in a good sense. And this is understood throughout the Scripture. You have in, in Ruth, you have uh, Naomi uh, rose with her daughter-in-laws to return to the land from the land of Moab because she had heard 
that in, heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited His people in supplying them with food, if you will. And actually, this uh, this Hebrew concept of God visiting it carries over into the New Testament. Uh, you have James saying, the "Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to visit." The orphans and the widows. This is the idea. Look in them on, care about them, look into their situation. And then, of course, uh, Jesus says, I was sick and you visited me not. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't care for me. So this word visit means to look in upon, to be concerned about something. So basically, he's telling us here that God is always concerned to recover that original ordained witness to himself in his image bearer, man, whom he's appointed to govern this earth. Pretty amazing. Come to the third stanza, verses 5 and 6. Notice, <clears throat> he points out that man is somewhat less than divinity. Somewhat less than God, if you will. It says, yet thou hast made him a little lower than God. Crowned him with glory and honor and majesty. Basically, he's looking now at man in his original creation, and he notes the unique makeup of his nature, and specifically his placement in the pecking order of all things. Where does man fit in? And within this creed, he says, You made him a little lower than the angels. He uses this word, which is translated angels in my Bible, and in the New Testament, it Translates that angels, angelos, Hebrews 2, 6 through 9. The Septuagint, it says angels. But actually, it's this generic word for God, Elohim. That's what the, the word here. Made him a little lower than Elohim. And this word Elohim is a generic term. It can mean a number of things. It can mean the true God. Uh, Elohim occurs 32 times in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. This is the word. And it occurs some 2,570 times in the rest of the Old Testament. It's the first and preeminent name for God in the Scripture. And there's this hermeneutical principle of first mention when something, whatever, when some, a word is mentioned in the Scripture, the first time it's mentioned, it carries that idea all the rest through the Scripture. Like worship. If you want to know what worship is all about, you have to look at Genesis 22. The first time worship occurs in the Bible. And you look around and see what, what, what goes with that. And that's the same thing with Elohim. It, uh, basically, it has the idea of a sovereign creator God. An all-powerful, supreme, personal being who brought the created order into existence and sustains that existence. It's also interesting that Elohim is the word that Jesus spoke in Aramaic on the cross. Elo, Elo, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? So Elohim can refer to the true God. In many places, it does. It can also refer to human judges. Psalm 82.6, John 19.31, those that represent divine authority on our, in the earth. They're, they're called little gods, if you're little, little Elohim. And then heathen gods, towards the pagans worship many gods. And since Elohim is the plural of El, then they have gods. You shall not have. You shall have no other gods, plural, little gods, before me. And that's 
this Elohim again. So you have it can apply to God, it can apply to human judges, heathen gods. But I think it probably the idea here is it's talking about angels, supernatural heavenly beings. Certainly include angel, probably other spirit beings. Now this position of human of the human species, if you will, within the created order is slightly lower than angels, which is much better than slightly higher than monkeys. But in the scripture, we're slightly lower than angels, if you will. So here's the order. It's God, the angelic being, man, animals, vegetation. At least that's the way it is before glorification. Things may greatly change. We'll have to check my notes when we get there, okay? Uh, And he's crowned with dignity. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. He further notes this, this relational prominence his placement in the order of, of things, and then the, uh, those things which he endowed God, God endowed man, certain privileges and honors he bestowed upon man. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Basically, he's given man man is a is a king. He actually uh, these are kingly attributes, royalty. He is the ruler, um, and so you might. It might be expected that the only created personal being designated as God's representative, as God's image bearer, is also the king of the earth, or the ruler of this earth. Not angels, by the way. Angels do not are not God's image bearers. Only man. That's interesting. Man having this personal likeness to God intellect, emotion, will, if you will. He's a personal being. He's created with the ability to communicate with God, to fellowship with His Creator and with other personal beings. He's the only terrestrial creature that can look up and ask, who? Why? You know, he. I've had a lot of dogs, but none of them asked me why they were there or why we're here or where we're going. Uh, I really love Al Mohler's questions that he always asks, asks lost people is, why is there something rather than nothing? What's gone wrong? The third question, is there any hope? And the fourth question, is history headed somewhere? Certainly man is the one that asks these questions and no other creature that God made. Human beings were originally created to be the sons of God, Elohim, to respond to His love, to partake of His divine nature, but since the fall, this, uh, this requires a drastic restoration. It's called regeneration. It's a, becoming a new creature and be having a new birth, if you will, in Christ Jesus. That has to take place before man actually becomes what God intended for him to become. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Acts. Acts 3 says, uh, speaks of the restoration of all things, and this is a part of that restoration. Making man the, the image bearer that God really meant for him to be. The next part of that, this delegated dominion in verse 6, he, he notes the scope of his sovereignty and rule. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. It says in Genesis 1.26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all, all the earth, and every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Fish of the sea, fowl of the air, every living thing that moveth on the earth. This idea of subdue, if you will, seems to imply that within the created order, even before the fall, nature has this resisted, resists some domination, if you will. So the rule, the breadth of domination of man, dominion of man over the present earth was proposed and prefigured certainly in the first Adam and it is and will be fully realized and greatly expanded in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. I like this passage in Genesis chapter 5. Let me just turn there. I didn't write that out. Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 where it gives the genealogy of Adam and it says, this is the book of the generation of Adam in the day God created him, created man. He made him in the image of his likeness. He created man, male and female, and blessed them and named them man in the day in which they were created. And Adam had lived 130 years. He became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Ah, things have changed since the fall. Now we're in the image of Adam. Now we're in his likeness. And we need that original God-ordained likeness restored in Christ. Um, <clears throat> man's dominion is illustrated here in this fourth stanza, verses 7 and 8. All sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So man is king... He was originally created as a king over the earth. He was totally, if you will, had dominion over the earth. Over all creatures that inhabit the earth, they were under his authority, under his responsibility, with an implied accountability. And it covers all three realms of the earth, land animals, birds of the air, and fish of the deep, the sea. All were originally given into Adam's caring rule and then was reconfirmed if you will somewhat in Noah in Noah chapter in Genesis 9 2 and following so let me just say something about this dominion there's a common misconception among human beings that they are the master of their fate and the author of their destiny and nobody has the right to tell me what to do after all I've got to save the planet. Fallen man actually thinks he's running the show. You ask our president, any of the people in Washington, they'll all tell you that we're running the show. However, the present world system is not controlled by man. It's controlled by angels. They're evil master who rules over the world forces of this present darkness is Satan. He has usurped man's position contrary to the original divine intention. According to Hebrews 2, it was not appointed to angels to have dominion, but to man. 
unregenerate man alienated from God by his sin is an evil genius. He can heal or he can harm. He can educate, he can exterminate. He can produce or he can plunder. He's invested with awesome capacities and his fallen state are both a threat to himself and to the whole world. Man is an errant king who can subdue everything but himself. As James says, everything has been subdued except man's tongue. He can't control his tongue. can't control himself. Then we're here to the closing refrain again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Again, this original doxology is repeated here. Uh, it renews this primary emphasis of the psalm. The splendor and the majesty of Jehovah God is our Lord and our Master. It's stated here, I think again, to cause us, the reader, as a man whom God created in His image to reflect His manifest glory originally, it's restated again to get us to think and to consider, well, do I know His name? Oh Lord, our God, and is He my Master? Isaiah 43.7 says, Thus says the Lord your Creator, I have created you for my glory. And of course, the word here to glorify someone is to give a true and correct opinion or estimate of something or someone. Am I giving a true reflection of my Creator? We were created uh, to live in such a way as to give this reflection as to, of the true God the way He really is. In such a way to give this opinion that reflects something of the true nature of God. I guess the question implied in all that is, am I fulfilling that? Am I doing that? Is that what, can I say that about myself? It's interesting, the next Psalm, Psalm 9, verse 10 says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. So it's a matter of knowing God and trusting God as our Master. This can only happen when God works in our hearts through the Gospel to enable us to pray something like this. Heavenly Father, You have created and provided redemption for me through the person and work of Your Son, Jesus Christ. As a fallen descendant of Adam, I know that I'm a bankrupt sinner. I've done many bad things. I understand that my sinful rebellion against you is the cause of all my suffering and even my death. I acknowledge that Jesus Christ's death on the cross paid the punishment for all my guilt and sin. I believingly receive what He did for me as a free gift and entrust my soul to Him as my Lord and my Savior. I thank You for the gift of eternal life, and I ask You to enable me to love You the way You have loved me, and to live in such a way that reflects something of Your holy character. Help me to get involved in a church and to live my life under the authority of Your Word, the Bible, as one of Your children should. I pray this for Jesus' sake. I trust you've prayed that something like that in your life. So let me close in prayer. 
Our Heavenly Father, we ask that You help us as Your children to learn to sing praises like David. Help us to live and to pray like Daniel, who asked, O Lord, hear us. O Lord, forgive us. O Lord, restore us to be useful servants. Manifest Your name as excellent in all the earth. May You continue to transform us to the image of Your dear Son, the perfect reflection of who You truly are. For, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all the earth. Amen.